If your older self could step back in time and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give? Me, I might be telling myself I had what it took to learn coding. I might direct myself into back-end web development. But if I did that, then I wouldn't have studied music in college. And then I wouldn't know what it was like to have a degree that left me without a professional career. And if that had happened, I wouldn't have known what it was like to struggle week to week to pay bills year after year. Don't judge me for the bad decisions of my youth. Struggle is a teacher. And now we have Pomology. We've all seen enough time loop movies to know that changing the past affects the present. We get one path or another, per universe. Do you have a fear of missing out? What's your pathway to maximized awesomeness? That's what we'll talk about today. Ready? You've discovered the Pamology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pamology Society's founder, James Carvin. Pamology is the philosophy of awesomeness in the multiverse. There may well be plenty of universes that do include time loops. Pomology says that if it would be good, then it's true. Take our free Pomology 101 course and see why this wonderful axiom is true. If time loops can be good, then this axiom says that they do happen. Think about that. Just apply it. If it would be good, then you actually do have the opportunity to go back into the past and give advice to your younger self. Isn't that cool? Of course, non-time-looping universes might be good in certain ways also. And whether that happens in this universe, I don't know. Maybe this is one of those time-looped universes. Could be. But if people from the future haven't appeared to you here, then maybe this isn't one of them. For the sake of today's thought experiment, let's assume it's not. Let's assume that the only form of speaking to younger selves in this universe is through older people who care about you. People like me. I'm in my mid-60s. To me, that's middle-aged. I plan to keep working for the Mammalogy Society until my 120s. To me, old doesn't apply to anyone under the age of 100. But you can think of me as an older person if you want, even if you were born before me. I decided not to sleep much in my life, so I've effectively been awake the equivalent of some centenarians already. Long sleep periods weren't a good option for me. It's too much work to do. I realized I needed to limit my sleep time to one REM cycle per night, which is about three and a half hours. Once I was in my 20s, and it started formulating my do-it-before-you-die list. Eventually, I put that list into writing, and today, we're going to talk about how my list took shape. As time and struggle continued to teach me more and more about myself and the world that I live in, I started revising my list. I want to describe this to you in detail today, so allow a few extra minutes for this episode. It's important. In this episode, I'm going to focus on how forming a list works. And in our next episode, I'll describe some of the items on my list. Sound good? The philosophy of awesomeness involves learning. Learning involves thinking, and thinking can be more effective if it's put into writing, can be. A written plan isn't required, but it can be very potent. 
It can also be reviewed and revised. Revision means thinking too, you know. Have you made out your do-it-before-you-die list yet, like I asked you to? Even if the answer is you don't have one yet, I really do want to see your list. I want to see the list of all the things you want to do before you die, or just check the pulse of how many haven't yet made one. Think about your pathway to awesomeness. What's the best you that you could be? What needs to be on your list? What order would work best? That's your pathway. Even if you haven't got the first thing on it, make the habit of writing it down. If for no other reason, then you can send it to me. And if not having a plan is your plan, then great, you're finished. Later, feel free to revise that too. Living in the moment may strike you as the most awesome you that you could be, and you may well be right about that, but you also have the liberty to revise that opinion at any time later on in your life. Go for it. Now, let's talk about my list. We can start with what's going on right now. Season 1 of the Pomology Society blogcast is a supplement to Pomology 101, so if you think about it, if I'm adding a supplement to Pomology 101, that means that the Pomology 101 course itself is in the midst of revisions. I have to complete it. Indeed, as I'm recording this, it is being revised. The first iteration was two dozen episodes or so of me talking in front of a camera with a funny hat on and clashing clothes. <laughs> it totally has to be changed. Version 2.0 of the Pomology 101 course will be more detailed, graphic intense, and professional. It offers lots of links to other resources and formalizes the logical proof that maximized awesomeness is true, meeting objections, putting that question to rest. Some of the revisions are to make ideas clearer and more accessible to those that are new to philosophy. Others are for the sake of peer review in the philosophical community itself. The audience isn't expected to have any knowledge of philosophy prior to taking this course. Yet at the same time, it was designed to be accepted by accredited universities as an introductory level elective. So it's got some footnotes. If you've taken version 1.0 of Pomology 101 for free, then you can also take version 2.0 for free, and I'd love your feedback. The Pomology courses and blogcasts have obviously all been on my do-it-before-I-die list. Revising them is too, and then there's marketing them. As I'm recording this, I haven't done that yet either. I wish I could talk to you about your list. While I'm alive, I do plan to make myself available to my audience as much as possible. I prefer one-to-one -one communication where I can. That's why having quality conversations with tens of thousands of Uber, Lyft, and Yellow Cab passengers through the years has been so gratifying. But my days of driving for a living are coming to a close, I have to confess. For one thing, I need cataract surgery. For another, I think it's time to reach more people through another medium. So today, we'll talk about how I made my list. I won't have enough time to go through the list itself. That'll be next time. My focus today is going to be on how the list gradually took shape, and that should help you with yours. It'll give you an example, one example anyway. Your own path won't be the same, but I think it'll help illustrate what I'm talking about here, about formulating a list. Okay. When I was young, my parents convinced me that I could be a great musician. 
My music teacher told them that I had a very good ear and that I should play the trombone because that required a great ear, not having keys like a saxophone or valves like a trumpet. She also had me sing in barbershop quartets because that sort of music doesn't use instrument. It requires a good ear, too, to sing without accompaniment. So, not knowing any better, I took my music teacher's advice and my parents bought me a trombone. Sure enough, I was pretty good at it. And I had a lot of fun playing in the band and various groups through the years and eventually let my father talk me into studying music in college. But inwardly, I knew something was wrong. There was something not right about it. Playing in band was an okay pastime, but I didn't love being on stage. In fact, I sort of dreaded it. My knees shook when I did solo performances, and my lips would freeze during recitals. Suddenly, the trombone would decide to stop doing what it had been doing while I'd been practicing it alone, sort of like driving a car, and then it just breaks down on you. It was similar to my fear of heights, so irrational. I paid for college on an athletic scholarship in springboard diving, though. I started diving at the age of 11 to impress a girl that I liked, and the more I did it, the better I got. I really wanted to impress her. I actually won the Eastern U.S. Championship for my high school division my senior year. But I was definitely afraid of heights. So when I went to diving camp under an Olympic coach one summer, I was pressured into diving from a 10-meter tower for the first time. Now, in case you don't already know, courage is not not being afraid, it's overcoming fear. In diving, I did learn the dives for 10-meter platforms, and I did compete against Olympic-quality divers, like Bruce Kimball, the son of my coach, more than once. And similarly, on stage, there are techniques that can be learned to overcome stage fright. Did you know that? But voluntarily putting yourself in very uncomfortable situations on a daily basis takes encouragement, takes motivation. I could have used a good life coach back then to get me through it. Could use one now. I took the easy way out. I wound up attending the University of South Carolina and diving there because the recruiting coach assured me that I'd never have to do all those fancy dives off the 10-meter tower. That's very high. I'd have a full scholarship, and USC only had a five-meter tower in a nice heated indoor pool. And he was right. It was glorious. So I worked out five hours a day in a nice heated pool and never had to learn new dives again off the 10-meter tower. Bingo. Perfect. Note to younger self. Easier tends to be good for the moment, but not for the long run. Both matter. Surround yourself with visionary motivators. All this took place before I started making any do-it-before-you-die list. It was the stuff I had to work with. I looked at my talents, and I looked at my limitations. I dove against Greg Luganis. Greg, it turns out, could jump over 40 inches high from the concrete. I could only jump 22 inches high. Hardly half. That was a physical limitation I was never going to be able to overcome, and I knew it. Plus, the fear of heights that limited me to the three-meter board. No one told me I could ever overcome that. Seemed my diving career could only go so far. I was convinced that diving and music might both be great for discipline and fun. They definitely sharpened my ability to focus, too. 
But I concluded way back then that neither one would serve for a career unless I wanted to coach or teach high school students. So, to skirt my performance anxiety, my junior year in college, I switched majors from performance to music composition. And one of my composition teachers happened to be a fellow named Otto Lunig. Otto asked me a question that stuck. He asked why I wanted to be a composer. And that made me think. It had started out that I had wanted to impress people, especially girls. Nothing had changed other than the fact that by the time I chose to major in composition, composition was all I had left in the music field, which had already had a little momentum going for it, and I didn't want to become a music teacher. The girl element was still there, though. I remember making a recording of a song that I'd written once for an assignment that included me singing. It got played for the class, to my surprise, and some girls started screaming as soon as they heard my voice like I was somebody famous at a concert. That was weird. I suppose that was what I was hoping for prior to that, but I still couldn't picture being a live performer. I actually do well speaking to large crowds about things that I'm passionate about, turns out, but playing trombone or singing solos in crowds Not so much. I stayed with the composition and did do some successful recitals of works that I had composed. Standing ovations and second bows were the measure for success for those things, so the decision to go into music composition wasn't a bad one under those circumstances. Well, despite the second rounds of applause, I wasn't a great composer. I wasn't prolific, and I had some pretty serious writer's block. Writing music was something brand new for me. And then one day something happened. For my senior project, my parents decided to drive up to South Carolina from Palm Beach to hear my recital and help me to move back home. The recital was going to be the performance of a trombone trio sonata that I had written in four movements that I had worked on for the whole semester. But as maximized awesomeness would have it, The other two trombone players didn't show up for the recital. They were in the midst of finals and moving home themselves, skipping any classes and activities that they could, as college students often do. I should have anticipated that, but worse. In the scramble to pack and move home, I had somehow lost my entire music portfolio. I spent the day looking everywhere for it. Two years of work was missing. Imagine my panic. But let me take you back to Otto Lunig's question. Why? Why did I want to study music composition? Was it girls? Well, of course it was. I knew that the second he asked it. But what stuck with me in that question was all the answers that I couldn't give. I didn't do it because I loved doing it. I didn't do it because I thought I was great at it. I was new at it, just learning it. And there was a fourth reason, a reason that came only later. I wasn't doing it to change the world. I was doing it for myself. That's the year that I became a philosopher. Never did I hear music the same way after I started asking why I wanted to write it, like Otto had asked me to. Why did Bach compose? Why did Beethoven? Why John Cage? Why Charles Ives? 
These were held up to me by my teachers as the best composers that history had. Why did they do it? I thought about this for the remaining two years that I had before I graduated. One summer day during that time, I also considered the Beatles. What a huge audience they were able to reach. Music of today was something that could be used for much good or for much evil because of the influence it could have over the masses. From Bach, I learned music could be a form of worship in beauty. From Beethoven, I learned it could be the first voice in silence, quiet, yet dramatic and loud, even in one's own mind. In case you don't know, Beethoven was deaf, but his compositions were amazing. Then there was John Cage. From John Cage, I learned that music didn't have to be defined traditionally. And there were the Hindus, Hindu music. From the Hindus, I learned that music was mystical. It could reflect and convey a spirit, sometimes holy and sometimes demonic, or just some mood. It dawned on me that I might be able to combine what the Beatles did with what the Hindu philosophy was teaching me with influence and a spiritual mood. In consideration of the Hindu music, I asked what the good spirit to influence the world might be. What was truly good? And what was music? And there was also jazz. Jazz combos reminded me of conversations without words, reflecting character, relationships. If you think about it, each instrument has its own little character in a group. I'd have to say that John Cage probably had the greatest effect on me of all of these. I spent a lot of time reflecting on the fact that music could be anything, not just traditional instruments and songs. I spent countless hours in a sort of state of wonder listening to nature itself and socializing people and other random things in life that I was hearing and interpreting it and even analyzing it as music. There were days when it seemed like all of life itself was God's composition. The Bible plainly states, in fact, that this is the day that the Lord has made. I learned to rejoice in it and be glad. So, as I drove uncomfortably with my parents back home from college, knowing they believed I was a liar, not really having written any trio sonata, I took consolation in the fact that the Lord was writing my life and that the journey home itself was a movement in God's masterpiece. In God's first movement, music was being taken away from me. Philosophy was taking its place. I lived with my parents for a few years after that, parking cars, taking a job at a bank, delivering newspapers and pizza, and I saved some money. And then when I upped my pay level by snagging a job as a letter carrier for the post office, I was urged by my parents to move out on my own. So I did, but not before my father and I were able to connect on some spiritual matters. He came to realize that I had a gift that he hadn't seen before, and he encouraged me to become a Catholic priest. Now, if you'll remember, I told you in a previous episode that my parents always argued about religion. My mother was Presbyterian. My father was Catholic. My father and I went to a retreat together, and he heard me speak there. He'd never heard me speak publicly before, but he was super impressed with what was coming out of my heart there. And not long after that, he suggested I go to Catholic seminary, and I was open to suggestions, so I actually tried it out. 
I did postgraduate studies there for about four years while carrying mail for my day job, but while becoming a priest was a consideration, it never made it to my list. Influencing people for good was on my list, though, but not performing rituals, not even as a priest. What if I forgot my lines? (laughs) The stage fright was still a thing. I'd also have to fully embrace Catholicism. I considered fully owning it, but there were a number of things that didn't seem right, and they lingered quietly in the background. I had questions both about the Catholic faith and about my mom's Presbyterian faith. I won't go into any of that today. Here I'm just going to demonstrate through my own example how the process of forming a do-it-before-you-die list works. It involves a pathway. I started out pretty clueless about what I was here for. I let other people impose their ideas on me and direct me, only to find out that they weren't quite right. Not for me. I had to discover my own awesomeness myself. The thing or things I was best suited for. What would I fully embrace? What can you pour your heart into knowing you're on track? You don't necessarily know at first. Discovering it may involve a lengthy path like mine. Now, if I had just learned to code, I would probably never have considered the priesthood. Coding would have led to cushy jobs and no dilemma about the meaning of music or of life. As I think about it, it's unlikely that I would have developed homology if that was the case. I'm not sure about that, though. Some homology seems sort of obvious. Why are we here? Odds are we shouldn't be born yet, or dead long ago. Yet now is the time that we have consciousness. How can anyone assume that time just moves on and we just happen to be lucky that the point in time we call now coincides with the one time for us to be alive? That's ridiculously improbable. Also, if I was a coder, I'd be better attuned to the process of computation. How can anyone not know that if the universe is fundamentally comprised of information, and all possibility is simply the total set of possible information, a matter of information itself, that every possible computational process is included in all possibility, including the formula and the process for our presence now? and that that computational reality, as information, is timeless in all conceivable places and conditions. But I digress. The pathway to awesomeness begins with all of what we've learned so far about the world and about ourselves. Forming a list begins with bad guesses about what would be ideal. When we're off base, there's a part of us that may sense that we are. So, if I thought it was going to be a famous musician, That might be an item I would put on my list, but later remove it after learning more about myself and the big picture of my world. I started to see what I wanted on my list when I discovered my strength and my passion. I discovered I was a philosopher who wanted to have a maximally positive impact on the world before I died. That was a sort of a vague statement. It's very general, but time would help make it more specific. I advocate writing down your list as soon as possible. Do you treat your life as if it was a business? You wouldn't go into a business without a business plan, I would hope. We might do well to treat ourselves and our lives like a business. We might want to write down our vision, our mission, and our long and short-term goals, too. A vision is a description of what your ideal relationship with the world would be. 
It's a character statement that describes your awesomeness and your impact as you see the final result. Your mission is a concrete proposal that brings forth the achievement of that vision. And your goals are the steps that help you achieve that mission. They're your map. They're the pathway to your awesomeness. And it's going to be revised from time to time. So once I knew I wanted to maximize my positive impact in the world, that that was my vision, I started looking for ways to accomplish it. Now, at first, I thought it might come about through recording some music, but that proved to be a bad first step, especially doing it alone. I needed friends in the business to help with the engineering. That and some hit songs. It could have happened, but it never came to that, mostly because I was trying to do it alone. Speaking of alone, I didn't want to be single either, and that can be distracting. As a married man, I haven't experienced loneliness for over 30 years at this point, but I do remember being very lonely when I was younger. I dated a number of women in my 20s, and that helped me figure out who I was. As I got to know those women better, I couldn't picture being with them. I met the woman that I would marry when I was in my 30s. Like many young couples, my wife Lisa and I didn't fully understand one another's visions coming into the marriage. Now, I don't blame her. My vision was still in the process of becoming clearer, so how could she have seen it? Her vision turned out to be considerably different than mine, and actually a lot simpler, and she hasn't changed it. In marriage, I've concluded, it may not be that the vision of both partners is the same, nor does it have to be. What matters is their compatibility. So long as my vision isn't in conflict with hers, the marriage can be mutually supportive where it matters the most. Her vision is as a conservative Christian evangelical convincing large numbers of people to turn their hearts over to Jesus, most especially our children. She also envisions travel and vacation time and the security of a modest home and a simple family. When we were young, she pictured enjoying visiting grandchildren and nice vacations, I suppose. But on our 13th anniversary, she had a severe stroke that left her paralyzed on one side for life. And our children still haven't married or had kids of their own. Her health is declining, so she may never meet her grandchildren, and she can't enjoy travel anymore for all the fuss about wheelchair transportation and such. And so you don't always get what you envision. But my point is, how different we are. My vision is of maximizing awesomeness, family included, by teaching pomology and seeing the projects that are listed at jamescarvin.com eventually thrive. My do-it-before-you-die list. It takes multiple seasons of blogcasts to share in detail what my vision is. A whole set of courses. I picture leaving my vision itself as my legacy, so that when I die, others can carry it out. But all that said, as different as our respective visions are, they aren't incompatible. They're mutually supportive. Lisa wants me to succeed, and I do what I can to comfort her and keep holding on to the hope that she'll enjoy more vacations and get to visit and hold our grandchildren one day. So whether your vision is complex or simple, that compatibility in a marriage is going to be very important, and you need to start thinking about it before you enter into that sort of a commitment. So let that be a lesson learned. Life involves gradual self-discovery and adjustment. 
A marriage partner isn't your clone, but they can't be toxic to you either. You need to know them well enough to make an educated guess that they'll be compatible with you, especially with regard to your vision, if you've come to see it yourself, or start to. That's why it behooves you to start seeing and discerning your vision early. For one thing, it could save you from a bad marriage. There are many things that can contribute to a divorce, a conflict of visions is one of them. So, as for you achieving your optimal awesomeness, in other words, your vision, be careful who you partner with and also recognize that vision morphs. It grows, becomes clearer. My sense of vision became clearer in a very odd way. I'd been recruited as an adjunct professor at one point for an Orthodox Christian college to put their curriculum online. The bishop seemed hateful to me towards Protestants. He even pronounced the word Protestants to emphasize the notion that those of the Reformed tradition had a rebellious spirit. Sometimes you have to see what feels like hatred to rethink things. Seeing that I was soft on Protestants, he assigned me to be an ecumenical liaison with the Catholics, and he later wrote a letter assigning me to be a missionary to the Protestants, the Protestants, to preach the message of Elijah, too. Now, he himself turned out to be highly controversial within the Orthodox Church. I'm not going to go into their eternal internal politics, my takeaway from it all is that some things will open your eyes. Open eyes are a key component for clear vision. That bishop also stirred up some other events in my life, which prompted me to quit the postal service after about 16 years working there. And that was tragic because it happened right when I had been about to get one of my inventions to market. I'd planned on quitting the post off eventually anyway, but not under duress or so soon. It's a fascinating side story, but I won't go into the details today. I don't have time. Here I just want to mention that the first of the items on my list, as it was starting to get clearer in my mind, was an invention I call the Ghost Machine, which you can read about at ghostsurfers.com. In general, in my life as a modus operandus, I take mundane jobs that don't require much concentration and don't worry me when I get home. And I use those jobs as financial cushion so I can pursue entrepreneurial endeavors, building prototypes that I can concentrate on after hours. I have very detailed plans that I've created because of this. On the downside, it didn't pay me enough money, so I've lived paycheck to paycheck and had to worry about that and managing a home. So, I'm not saying this was the best course to have taken. It is what it is. And if I'd been able to put some money aside and let it work for me through the years, I would have been better self-capitalized for those startups. So, maybe I tripped myself up doing this. And unfortunately, none of the startups happened. I got short-sighted on capital when I quit the post office prematurely. That was a blow. And when my parents kicked me out of their house after college, my savings had been depleted because they went into a down payment on a townhome. And in the mid-1980s, there was a real estate slump. So go figure. I wasn't having the best of luck with my investments. So I've never had money that I could leverage or use for startup capital. But still, I was a gifted inventor, and I used that. 
And I was actually very good at predicting technological innovation and market trends. So I did wind up using my strength and my passion after all. Now, let's talk strategy. In the final analysis, I wanted to use the ghost machine to make me some money and provide me with a platform of communication for other endeavors, including a summation of my philosophical thought, probably learned through a third party, maybe like if somebody was a biographer on Wikipedia. Now, at the turn of the millennium, I hadn't yet come up with the name Pimology to describe my philosophical system, but thoughts about the multiverse and the probability of consciousness at a given point in time, and God as maximized awesomeness, have all been parts of my thought process all along. The hand system was also something that I came up with in the early 1980s, and at the time, I'd wanted to communicate all of these things, but lacked any adequate vehicle or platform of communication for it. Today, the Pimology Society ties all these diverse concepts together, as a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to teach this philosophical system and facilitate something called pamelonomies. And the ghost machine would be one of those. Now I'm going to close on a note about pamelonomies since we're there finally. A pamelonomy is a high potential impact concept stage enterprise that'll either be a nonprofit organization or owned by product or service providers and users rather than by third-party shareholders and investors. Angels and venture capitalists are out of the picture. The Pimology Society is going to facilitate strategically selected projects within that scope by raising funds and providing volunteers to staff them. Each of the programs that are listed at jamescarbon.com is a Pamelonomy candidate. And in our next episode, I'm going to offer a summary of some of those projects and show what I mean by strategy. So, having conveyed all of this, I want to encourage you to submit your own proposal in the form of your list. And now that you've seen how lists are formed, and you know that I want to see your lists, would you please feel free to offer the same sort of background regarding your proposals as I've offered here and I'm going to offer on the next episode. Now, my vision isn't enough. I want to know yours. Being strategic involves what order that we do our projects in, how we revise our list over time, and how we contribute to it to ensure its optimal success, as well as how we work together to achieve it. By the time I've shown you how my own list works in the next episode, you'll have had the chance to see how your own list might add to it. It's a cliche acronym, but together everyone achieves more. Team, welcome to the society. We're a team. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Pamology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pamology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pamology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.